If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 31 through 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for this great passage in which Christ declares not only who he is, but the witnesses who bear witness to that truth. I thank you, Father, that you have supplied everything we need to see the truth of who Christ is, that you have given us sufficient testimony to his glory, to his person. I pray, Lord, that as we walk through this passage today, that you would continue to speak and bear witness to the truthfulness of who your Son is. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be opened to see afresh the truth of Christ and the truth of how you have borne witness to him. And Father, if there are those here who do not know you, who are blind to these truths and deaf to these truths, I pray pray that you would open their blind eyes and their deaf ears today, that they may see and hear Christ and that they may come to him. So, Father, we ask that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would comfort your people, that you would be with us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. I have held for a long time to the conclusion that one of the hardest parts of the Christian life is the fact that we do not have the ability to open other people's eyes and other people's ears to the truth. 
Now, that reality is especially painful when the lost person in question is someone very near and dear to us. I don't think a week goes by where I as a pastor do not hear from many of you, multiple of you, almost every week about loved ones that you are praying for and actively witnessing to. And so often those conversations come with tears because we so want them to want Christ. And often we are tempted to think that if we just got them to talk to the right person or hear the right preacher or have the right experience, then they would come. Or maybe if God would just do a miracle in their life, then they would believe, right? Well, the reality is when we are tempted to think that way, and we all are, but it is then that we are not thinking rightly about the true nature of unbelief. As we will see today, there is perhaps nothing more resistant and more stubborn in all of the world than the unbelieving heart. In fact, we are going to see today the full reality of how far unbelief will go in the human heart. And the truth of it is actually quite shocking. But there is always As we continue to work through the Gospel of John, today we're continuing in this great discourse from Jesus in which He is revealing His identity in response to the accusations that have been leveled against Him. And no doubt you remember by this point, all of this began because Jesus demonstrated His power by healing a 38-year invalid. The problem with that was that He did it on the Sabbath. And he claimed that his prerogative was to to do so was rooted in the fact that his father was working and he was working. Jesus claimed to possess the same divine prerogative as God to accomplish work that transcends the Sabbath. As a result, he was accused of being a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer, something worthy of death. And they were, in fact, seeking to kill him. As the last few weeks, as a result of that, the last few weeks we have been working through his, his response to all of this. And we have broken up this discourse into three main sections, summarized nicely for us by J.C. Ryle, which were his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his messiahship. Today we are finally at this third section. We will begin the third section today, picking up in verse 31, and we're going to work down through verse 40. And then, Lord willing, we will continue and finish this discourse next week. But what we have in this passage is really a scathing rebuke. As Jesus addresses these Jewish leaders, He demonstrates the extent of their blindness and reveals their true hearts before God. But it is not only for them. I mean, it's very likely that he is actually speaking to a larger audience here. But more than that, it's, it's very much applicable to the human heart in general. And what we're going to see as we look at this is there's been four different ways that the Father has validated the Son 
that these men were absolutely blinded to. And that is through the witness of John the Baptist, through the witness of the works of Christ, through His own direct witness as the Father, and through the witness of the Scriptures. Those are the four ways that the Father has validated the Son. And as we work through this, I want us to ask the question of where does the true heart of unbelief lie? Is it in the insufficiency of what God has provided, or is it in something else? Obviously, we know the answer to that question, but I want us to feel the weight of this as we work through this. I want us to feel the weight of how dark the human heart truly is apart from grace. How in bondage it is to its own desires. Because in seeing that, it will help us to be reminded of the only true source of hope for anyone to believe. But beyond that, I also want us as believers to think about how this applies to ourselves. We need to be aware of how much we are still affected by our own abiding desires that are contrary to God. Our own abiding desires that affect and conflict with our relationship to God. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's dig in. But before we get to those four witnesses, let's look at how Jesus sets this whole thing up. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So in order to understand what is going on here, we have to remember the context from which we are coming. In the prior verses, Jesus has just made some remarkable statements about who He is and about what He is doing and about what He will do. Rather than diffusing the accusations against Him, Jesus actually raises the intensity by declaring that He is one with God the Father. He is the one who has the role as the giver of life, the only one who can bestow eternal life. He is the one who has the role as the judge of the entire world. And He has supreme authority to carry these things out. And then in the verses just prior to this, Jesus had just declared to these men that He is the Son of Man, as prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, who will be coming on clouds of glory. And that there is a day when all of the dead, every single person who has ever lived and died, will rise just by the very power of His voice. Some people will rise to everlasting life, and others will rise to everlasting judgment. And Jesus declares that His judgments are just because He carries out the Father's will. Obviously, these were... These were no small claims that Jesus was making. But now he's, he's transitioning into showing them that these claims of His are not His claims alone. This is not something that He is just saying about Himself by Himself. There are others who corroborate His testimony, His words. And chiefly, there is one witness to whom all should listen, and to whom all should believe. And that is God. 
God the Father. In fact, all of the witnesses that Jesus is going to bring out ultimately point back to the testimony and affirmation of God the Father to His Son. God has testified to the truthfulness of who Christ is through various means. And in reality, that's what this whole section is about. It is about the various ways God has shown the truth of who His Son is. Yes, there are various witnesses that we will see, but behind them all is the Father. He is the primary and divine witness to the truth of Christ. And that is why Jesus starts out the way He does. When He he transitions to this evidence, in verse 32... He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. That is undoubtedly a reference to God the Father. And because this is, this is God that Jesus is speaking of, he notates that his testimony must be true. I know that his testimony the bear, that he bears about me is true. Why? Well, because as the Jews would well know, as is stated in the law in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie. God never lies. His testimony is always true. And so that stands as his thesis, if you will, for verses 31 through 40. I'm not bearing witness about myself alone. The Father bears witness about me, and His testimony is true. The truth of who Christ is is testified to by God. Now, there is a particular reason, though, why this is important in the Jewish mind. When he says, if I bear witness about myself alone, my testimony is not true, he's not invalidating his own witness about who he is, nor is he even saying that he can't legitimately testify about himself. He does, and he will testify about himself throughout this gospel all over. The I am statements are everywhere. Rather, what he is saying is that if all he had was his own testimony, it would not be enough. It would not be sufficient to establish the truth of that claim. Why? Well, for two reasons. One is because of the law of God. In the law of God, in several places, it requires two witnesses. And Deuteronomy 19 is one such example. It says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidences of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. See, it was a known legal precedent for the Jews that they had to have two or three witnesses for sufficiency under the law. And this whole passage is just dripping with this legal language. It's almost like a courtroom scene of these witnesses testifying to who Christ is. But the second reason why Jesus' testimony would not be sufficient in and of itself is due to the nature of the claim that He is making. Because He is making a divine claim, 
It required a divine witness. Human testimony would not be sufficient, as we will see. See, later on, Jesus is going to talk about these very same things later in the book. In chapter 8, Jesus gets accused of bearing witness about himself. And he responds in like fashion, but with a little more clarity. He's a little more explicit. I think it's helpful. Listen to this interchange from John chapter 8. The Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I've come from, and I know where I am going. But you don't know where I've come from, nor do you know where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. See, that's what this is about, establishing this legal precedent of two witnesses. So clearly, though, back in our context, in verse 31, Jesus is not invalidating his own witness. He is just saying that it alone is not enough. It's not sufficient by itself to establish the truth according to the law. This whole thing is a legal interchange. But there is another who bears witness about him, namely the Father who sent him. He is the chief witness. He is the divine witness. And his witness has already been on display in four ways, or you could say four different witnesses ordained by the Father, starting with John the Baptist. Look at verses 33 and 30 through 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. Notice that Jesus starts out here speaking very directly. He's using the second person, personal pronoun, you. You sent to John. Now this is a plural. He's speaking to a group here, but He is laying this in their laps. You've not just heard this from me. You yourselves sent a delegation to John, and he told you the same thing. He bore witness to the same truth. Remember, John spoke of the coming Messiah, and then he openly declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. John's whole purpose was to prepare the people for the coming Lord and to bear witness to who he is and what he would do. And where did John's commission come from? It came from God. In fact, this gospel opened with an affirmation of the origin of John's ministry. In John chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. See, John fulfilled that purpose. He was sent by God the Father to bear witness about God the Son. 
And he even made that explicit in his testimony to the people. The Jews were aware of this. Remember, back in John 1.33, his address to the, to the crowds, he said this, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John was clear. John was explicit. They knew that John's claim was that he was sent by God as a forerunner for the coming Lord. John's purposes were known and fulfilled, sent by the Father to witness about the Son. But if all Jesus had was John's testimony, it would not be enough. And that's why Jesus says, not that the testimony that I have received is from man. Meaning, the affirmation of his identity does not and cannot have a human origin. He is not who he says he is because John says so. Human testimony is not enough to establish that kind of truth claim. But the reason he is still pointing them back to this is because it still serves as evidence. John was no small thing. In fact, as we discussed when we focused in on his ministry, he was huge at the time. Everyone, every Jew knew who John was and revered him as a prophet of God. So much so that even the king feared his influence. That's why Jesus says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. This this is a reference to the reality that at one time the Jews accepted John as a prophet of God and they were absolutely mesmerized by his ministry. There was messianic excitement and a buzz in Jerusalem. Because of John, the Jews had Messiah fever, but only for a while. Eventually, in their fickleness, When his message got more explicit, more clear, they turned their backs on him. And Jesus is pointing that out. And this type of pattern is not an isolated event. We often are prone to think that if if just the right people with the right amount of influence would just believe the gospel and proclaim Christ, then surely revival would break out and the masses would come flooding into the faith. But that's just not how God's kingdom works. In fact, of the countless, and I mean countless, thousands that followed John's ministry, we only have a record of a tiny number who actually continued to believe his message and actually ended up following Christ. Thousands got caught up in the excitement of it all. But by the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, there was only 120 in the upper room. And only a fraction of those were originally John's disciples. And likewise, when some celebrity or a politician claims Christ, they may get some people riled up. They may get some people excited. But where are the masses who have come to Christ because of the the influencers in this world? It's just not how God is working. They're not there. Jesus does not get His credibility from man. And unbelief is not overcome by someone else's popularity. 
So then why does Jesus bring, bring all of this up? Why, why does he remind them that they were willing to rejoice in John's light for a while? Just to show their hypocrisy? Well, yes, I think that's actually part of it. But that's not the end of his purpose. Look at verse 34. He says, But I say these things so that you may be saved. It's just absolute grace. Christ is always going after the sinner. You see, the purpose of Jesus' ministry, the purpose of his words here, even though they're direct and confrontational, was not to condemn. It was to save those who were already condemned. Now, we don't know how big of an audience that was there for this discourse, but we do know he is addressing Jewish leadership that wanted to kill him. But I would imagine that there were many regular Jews gathered as there typically were in these conversations. And again, we know that of the leadership, at least one of the Pharisees does come out. Nicodemus. And Jesus is after them. He's after him and he's after whoever will believe this truth. The whole purpose of this discourse, while it is confrontational, is to bring grace. And that goes to show us that sometimes it is incumbent upon us to tell people hard truths. To even point out their hypocrisy in order to bring grace. If all we ever do with somebody is dance around the truth in order to avoid offense, often we will end up veiling the truth, veiling the very gospel that we want someone to believe. Sometimes saying the hard truth is the most loving thing that you can do. But motivation matters. Jesus is not here just to prove himself right. He doesn't have to prove himself to anyone. Rather, he is issuing this discourse that some of his hearers might really hear and be saved. Don't engage arguments in order just to be right. That just makes you a quarrelsome person, even if you are right. Rather, engage people in order that they may be saved, in order to bring grace into their lives. That's what Christ is doing. And because that's Jesus' motive, he doesn't stop just with John's testimony. He actually moves on to a weightier witness, which was his own works, the works of Christ. The second witness ordained by the Father is the works that Jesus was doing, the very works that the Father had given him to do. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You see, the whole point of the works themselves were to testify to his identity, that he was, in fact, the one sent by the Father. Now, when Jesus uses this word works, this is a a more general term in John's gospel than the word signs, which John also frequently uses. But the word works would include not only his, his miracles, his signs, but also his teachings. 
Both demonstrated his authority and his divine nature. In his teachings, there was a a wisdom and authority seen in what he said that was unlike anything that anybody had ever encountered. In fact, Matthew explicitly highlights this. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew 7, it says this, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, his teaching was different. He said things that nobody else was saying. He said things no one else could say. He was even able to speak about the true heart of the law with authority. He said things like, you have heard it said, and then quoted God's word, and then he said, but I say to you. Who can say that? No one else can speak like that. No one. Only Christ. Only the one sent from the Father. But then on top of that, on top of his authoritative teachings, was his miracles that attested even further to who he was. And that was the ultimate and driving point of his miracles. Jesus wasn't doing miracles just for benevolence's sake, though he most certainly was acting in benevolence through his miracles. That wasn't the point. This is why you need to avoid any groups that have made the Christian life about seeking signs and wonders. Jesus' ministry was not about signs and wonders. Jesus' ministry, the point of it, was about Jesus. It was about revealing God the Son to the world, and in so doing, saving a people for Himself. And the signs and wonders that He performed were simply a means toward that end. They were a tool to testify to who He was. And as I have noted before, contrary to the so-called miracles of today, His miracles were absolutely undeniable. You will never see His opponents deny His works. In fact, when we get to John chapter 11, we're going to see the Jewish leaders deliberating about how to kill Him. But they are confused and they say this in verse 47, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. You see, they knew it. They couldn't deny it. But you don't see any of these modern-day charlatans on the 6 o'clock news because they walked into a hospital and cleared it out, performing undeniable miracles. No, they only perform their tricks in their controlled environments after whipping people up in their emotions. That's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus is out in the open. Nobody could deny what he was doing. Sadly, because they had no explanation for it, their unbelieving hearts had to come up with something. So some of the leaders actually attributed his power to the works of Satan. But the fact is, these works are not even works that Satan can do. Oh yes, Satan can perform false signs and wonders, and he does. But he does not have the power to bestow life. 
He does not have the power to do what Christ was doing. Now others, like Nicodemus, rightly concluded that God was at work, but wrongly concluded that Jesus was just a mere prophet or just a teacher come from God. And yet still others only cared about Jesus because of the signs that He was doing. As we will see in the very next chapter, they only wanted to follow Jesus because of the worldly benefit that they might incur through His power. All of that was to equally miss the point. He was able to do what He was able to do because He is God in the flesh. And as He says here, all of His works were given to Him by the Father and were part of the Father's testifying to who He is. But the reality is, even though countless people witnessed this stuff, they still did not believe. Often we hear, if God would only give me a sign, then I would believe. Or, or we think, if only miracles were still happening today like they were back then, then surely the multitudes would come in. No. Again, when, when Jesus came, there was an explosion of miracles on the scene that generated a lot of excitement, witnessed by countless thousands. But even still, at the end of His life, He ended with very few followers. Miracles will not overcome the unbelieving heart. The Father provided evidence through the works, but the human heart still did not believe. But the Father has not just testified indirectly. Jesus says that He has actually testified directly as He lists the Father as His third witness here in the list. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. Now there is some debate as to what Jesus is referring to when He says that the Father has borne witness to Him because He doesn't explicitly say how that took place. Many hold the position, and I would agree, that this is a subtle reference to what happened at His baptism. When the Spirit descended like a dove, and the Father affirmed from heaven that this is my beloved Son. That moment was the moment of the divine affirmation of the Father upon the Son. And even though these guys would not have been there, been present for that event, they likely would have actually been familiar with it because John the Baptist and others present had related. And so Jesus is driving home that beyond John himself, beyond the works themselves, the Father, notice, notice the emphatic language, the Father sent, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Whether they were there for it or not, God bore witness directly that this is His beloved Son. But then Jesus brings scathing clarity as to why they have not received that testimony. He says, His voice you have never heard, 
His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. What he is doing here in many ways is he's actually attacking their claimed heritage. See, the Jews boasted in their forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many others all heard the voice of God, like Moses, many others in the line of Israel. Jacob, who is Israel himself, he said that he had seen the form of God when he wrestled with God in Genesis 32. And then on top of that, it was the command and culture of every Jew to hide God's word in their heart. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's just what Jews did. Jesus is essentially telling them, you are not true Jews. You're not like the saints of old. Your claimed heritage is not your heritage. Because they did not know God. They did not know His voice. They did not know His form. And they did not have His word in their heart. And Jesus says this is all evidenced by the fact that they did not believe in Him. For you do not believe in the one whom He has sent. These were Jews by birth, yes. They had a physical heritage, but not by spiritual birth or by a spiritual heritage heritage. As Paul says in Romans 2, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Being a child of God is not about what anyone claims to be or what they're born into. It is only about what they really are on the inside, in the place where only God can see. And these men, though leaders and teachers in Israel, were not Jews, not true Jews. And the intended irony of what Jesus was saying here is found in the fact that they had before them a greater experience than any of the patriarchs or any other leader or prophet in all of Israel's history. There at this very moment, they they were hearing from the very voice of God and seeing the very form of God in human flesh, right in front of them. And they did not have ears to hear, nor did they have eyes to see, because they did not believe in the one whom he has sent. So Jesus Jesus is not saying that knowing God is contingent on seeing his physical form or hearing his physical voice, obviously. But when God is standing in front of you and speaking to you, and you cannot see him nor hear him, It is because you are blind and deaf. Your heart will not believe. They did not truly have His Word in their hearts because they did not believe in the One whom He has sent. And playing off of that, playing off their lack of God's Word, truly abiding in their heart, Jesus brings forth one more witness ordained by God which in my opinion is likely the most shocking of all to these Jews. And that is the Scripture itself. God's very Word is the fourth witness here ordained by the Father. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. The reason this was most likely the, the most shocking of them all is because this would be the witness with which they would be the most familiar, the most intimately familiar. See, when Jesus says, you search the Scripture, that translation does not really capture the essence of the word he's using here. Now, the word that is translated search means to make a careful or thorough effort to learn something, to search, examine, and investigate. It actually corresponds with a known Hebrew term at the time that spoke of the professional, diligent exposition and study of the law. This, this, was, this was not a reference to a, a casual reading of Scripture. Uh, many other translations actually will add an adverb in here to help get the point across. The, the NET says, you study the Scriptures thoroughly. Uh, the NIV says, you study the Scriptures diligently. And the HCSB says, you pour over the Scriptures. And the point is, Jesus is not just acknowledging that he's speaking to some people who occasionally read their Bibles no, he is, he is conceding here that this group of men, these Jewish leaders, are a people who know the Old Testament inside and out. One commentator said the, the, their study of Scripture for the Jews was, was legendary. It is the stuff of legends. No one was given to knowing God's Word as they were. And that's terrifying. But yet there's a reason why they were so given to knowing God's Word, and Jesus brings it out. What was their, what was their motive for such diligent study? He says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. In saying this, Jesus is referring to the Jewish belief that Israel, above all nations, had been given God's divine word, His divine law, by which they may acquire life. In their view, to spend time studying the Scriptures was in and of itself a good deed, a form of piety by which they may gain life. In fact, one rabbi said it was the most meritorious of all good deeds. Another rabbi Famous first century Rabbi Hillel said, The more study of the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. See, Jesus is not misrepresenting their view here, not at all. They believed that the scriptures were intrinsically life giving. But in that, they had missed the point. They had turned scriptures into a tool by which they may inflate their own egos and acquire their own righteousness leading to life. Yes, they could boast in the truth that they knew more facts about the scripture than any other people on the earth, but quite ironically, in all of their knowledge, they had missed the central point of scripture itself, which is, of course, Christ. You think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. It's all about Christ. This is one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, and for good reason. The magnitude of what he just said is really hard to comprehend. Especially for a Jew who has known and revered the Old Testament his entire life. 
But in this one sentence, Jesus just gave the interpretive key to the entire Bible. The interpretive key to all of Scripture. And the the key to interpreting Scripture is Christ. Christ is our hermeneutic. Christ is the key to interpret the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the New Jerusalem in Revelation, it is Christ. Anyone who tells you that in order to read the Old Testament rightly, you must read it as a Jew would prior to the Incarnation, is telling you to give up the interpretive key to the entire Bible. As Paul says over and over, the mystery has been revealed in Christ. Why would we give that up? And all through this gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment and the point of Scripture with allusions to Moses and to Jacob and to Abraham or the books of the prophets like Amos and Jeremiah or Isaiah, which is everywhere. Or just as we saw last week with the reference to the Son of Man passage from Daniel 7, Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of it all. If you don't see that, you cannot rightly see or understand the Bible. You can't. And you won't. The Bible is about Christ. He fulfills the Scripture. But I'm going to tell you something that may sound a little controversial. Even seeing that and understanding that is not enough. Why? Because the Christian life is not about the Bible. What do I mean? I mean that you can give your life to studying the Scriptures. You can come to right conclusions You can have perfect theology and hermeneutics. You can memorize the entire New Testament in the Greek, if you like. And you can still go to hell. Why? Because it's not about how much you know. It's about who you know. And for that reason, we study the Bible. And for that reason, we want to interpret it rightly. And for that reason, we want to have right theology, that we may know Him, that we may grow in our understanding of who He is and how we can live in such a way that is pleasing to Him. Just understanding that Scripture is about Him is not enough. You've got to go to Him. Look look back at what Jesus said. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Life is found in coming to Christ. Not in possessing superior knowledge, but it's found in Him, in Him alone. And Jesus just brought it, he just brought the crux of the matter right here. When it comes to understanding the unbelieving heart, this is it. Jesus' conclusion here for all of these witnesses is not that they were insufficient. It is not that they were lacking in evidence for anyone. The reason they did not come was not a lack of evidence. Rather, the reason they did not come is because they refused to come. 
Literally, the Greek word here is fellow. It speaks of one's will. Speaks of desire, one's wants. A more clear rendering of what Jesus is saying is, yet you do not will to come, or you do not want to come, that you may have life. The problem is not evidence. It is the will of the human heart. They did not come to Christ because they did not want to come to Christ. The cost was too great. There's too much to give up. There's actually no real desire in the human heart, in any human heart outside of Christ, to submit, truly submit to God. There is desire to use God and to use His law as a means of gain and good standing in this world, as a means to acquire things in this world, as a means to obtain power in this world. That's why religions exist all over the place. But there's not a desire to truly know God and love God and submit to God in the natural human heart. It does not exist. And this is not just an indictment on the Jewish heart. This is an indictment on the human heart. The Jews, of all humans, were just the people who were given more privileges than any other nation on the earth. They were given more light to anyone And yet the sinfulness of the human heart still preferred the darkness. Religious darkness. But darkness nonetheless. And apart from grace, everyone else would do the same. The human heart wants what it wants. We have a wanting problem. And apart from grace, it does not want Christ. They had everything they needed to see the truth standing before them but the desires of their hearts would not allow them to see it. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we close two things I want us to take away from all of this. One in regard to others and one in regard to ourselves. First, we need to remember these truths as it pertains to the lost and dying world around us. As it pertains to our lost friends and family members. Every person we have ever met or every person we've ever witnessed to, their ultimate problem, their ultimate problem is not that they need more evidence of God's existence. Evidence for God's existence is everywhere and it's written upon the conscience of mankind. Their ultimate problem is that they have a heart that exists in rebellion to God. And they have a heart that does not want God. So it does not matter if they hear the right celebrity preacher. It does not matter if they witness a miracle. It does not matter even if God speaks to them directly. And it would not matter if they grew up memorizing Scripture and know exactly what the Bible says and means. And sadly, we all know people for whom that is the case. If their want problem, their will, is not overcome by divine grace, they will never never come because they don't want to come. So then what do we do? Do we just give up and say, well, whatever will be, will be? Well, that's not what Christ is doing. And I'm certainly glad that that's not the case for whoever witnessed to you or to me. No, we don't give up. We recognize that their greatest need is not the right person or the right miracle or the right experience, but their greatest need is Christ. And we know that God uses the means of of the gospel to save. And the gospel is primarily comes through people. 
everyday, normal people like you and me. So knowing that we continue to point our lost loved ones and friends and family members to the same truths over and over and over while bathing them in prayer all the time, knowing that the final results are in the hands of God. And if He chooses to save, we need to recognize that it is all of mercy and it is His doing, not ours. And if He chooses not to, then we have to reckon with the fact that it is all of justice. No matter how much you love that person, you need to understand that their choosing to reject God is on them. God does not owe mercy to anyone. And we dare not charge Him with injustice if He does not grant it. But this is why, like Paul, we use that as fuel to plead with men to be reconciled to God. Don't leave evangelism to the side. Life is short. It will be over soon. You only have one chance to tell some people about the gospel. And we need to plead with them. As long as they have breath, there is hope. So keep sharing the gospel because it is the only thing that will overcome their stubborn wills. But then as we think about how this pertains to us, how we apply this to us, we need to remember that our relationships with Christ is a gift that none of us deserve. There should be a deep and abiding humility in all of us that we are, in fact, believers. Nobody here is here because you made a, a better decision by the strength of your will. Nobody is here because you and all your intellect examined the evidence and came to the logical conclusion about Jesus, even though it is the logical conclusion. No, you are here because God opened your eyes to see Jesus, and he opened your ears to hear the truth. And that should cause deep humility towards those who don't believe. If you have a pompous attitude towards unbelievers, you don't understand grace, and you don't understand your own heart prior to it. But beyond that, we need to be aware that the issue of overcoming the will or the desire of the heart is not over for us. All of us who are believers, I think, would say that we desire a deeper relationship with God. But I'm going to tell you something that might sting a little bit. Everyone in this room, including me, has exactly the depth of relationship with God that they truly want right now. No matter what you may say with your mouth or think with your thoughts, you have exactly what you want. Because the problem is not with God. He has flung the doors wide open through Christ. He has promised in James 4, 8, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. The problem is not with God. The problem is overcoming our fickle hearts that are easily, so easily drawn away by lesser desires. We say we want God, but often there are things that we want more. But Christ says to seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. Do you trust God enough to believe that? 
live that out. Fight those desires, church. Pray for the grace to overcome them. You want a deeper relationship with God? Then fight for it. Fight your will in order that you may lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You do that, and you will truly be pursuing a deeper relationship with God. Let's pray. Well, Father, how much we are in need of mercy every day. But I thank you, God, that your mercies are new every day. And Lord, I pray that we would avail ourselves of those mercies. That by grace that we would run to you. Lord, that you would help us to identify the things that are in our lives that hinder our relationship with you, that pull us away from you, that pull us away from pursuing you, and that you would give us the strength and the courage to crucify them afresh, that we may know you more, that we may run after you more, that we may make you our sole pursuit in life. So Father, we ask for grace and for mercy in our lives. And for those who don't know you, Lord, for the family members who don't know you, for those that we are pleading for, Lord, would you have mercy upon them? Would you show yourself kind in their lives? Would you open their eyes to see Jesus and grant them the same grace that you've given us? But Lord, if you do not, we dare not charge you with injustice. We know that you are good and that your purposes prevail. We trust in that. In Christ's name, amen. You'll stand, let's close by singing.